pray, and then we can jump in uh, to James 1. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to celebrate you and enjoy you and be with you. God, as we open up your word this morning, give us eyes to see, give us minds to comprehend, give us hearts to believe, give us hands and feet to respond to your word this morning. You have a reason, you got us up today, and it's not just to get us to tomorrow, you have purpose and intentionality for today, Lord. Help us to be purposeful and intentional with the way we engage with the world around us, the way we engage with you. God, as we open your word, as we study your word, I pray that it would do the things in us and that we would respond to the things that your word does. Challenge, encourage, equip, rebuke. Let it be all the things that it is to us and let us not run and hide from it, but hear it, read it, see it, and respond to it. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in James 1. We're going to pick it up right in verse 5. You should be very familiar with it at this point. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they will, he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So last week we started this study in the book of James, and we looked at James's introduction and then how he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we talked about what that looks like, what that means, and how if we will count it all joy, if we will see the trials and testing of our lives as something, not as punishment, but as an opportunity for God to grow us, then what that growth will look like is steadfastness, enduring patience. And that enduring patience will take it in its full effect in verse 4 will make us to be perfect complete lacking in nothing when it comes to our spiritual maturity in christ now um, what james is going to do and we talked a little bit about this last week is that the book of james is written a lot like proverbs where it feels like at times he's kind of bouncing from one idea to the other without a whole lot of connecting points but in actuality there are a lot of connecting themes he just uses certain words or phrases to kind of draw that line though it's kind of squiggly Today is one of those kind of times where he's continuing the same thought here in verse 5. Basically what he's saying is if you're having trouble understanding verses 2 through 4, this idea of counting trials and tribulations as joy, then what will help in that is wisdom. Wisdom is what you need. How to proceed in trials, the ability to count it all joy, it requires wisdom. And so this morning that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what wisdom is, how to get it, how not to get it, and then a practical example of wisdom played out in the world. And so what James says there in verse 5 is that what we need is wisdom. You can see there's a connecting point between verses 4 and 5. The connecting point is lacking. In verse 4 he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
And then right there, he uses that same word in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, steadfastness will develop in us a lacking in nothing. But while that is happening, while steadfastness is doing what it is meant to do, James addresses an obvious place that we all may be lacking, wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, now would anyone here say, I have enough wisdom? I'm, I'm wise enough. No, I don't need to get any wiser. I have reached the apex. I'm at the peak. I'm good. Hopefully not. Because if you were to say that, it would reveal the reality that you actually do lack in wisdom and humility, but that's a different sermon. So what is wisdom? Certain books of the Bible are geared toward helping God's people grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. In the Old Testament, it's known as the wisdom literature. You've got Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes, you have Song of Solomon, and I think you can put James in there as well. It's kind of the New Testament version. It's helping us grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. These things, all three, go together. Knowledge is knowing the right things. Understanding is being able to comprehend those things. And wisdom is the skill to apply that right knowledge. One of the words for wisdom is this, a skill for living. These things all go together, and without one, the other can be lacking. If you think about the engine in a car, knowledge would be when you open the hood of your car, Knowledge says you can know the different parts of the engine by name. Understanding would be able to identify those parts under the hood, not only just knowing you know, you have what parts are in your engine, but knowing where they are, knowing what they look like. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and the understanding and being able to address any issues and make that car run the best way possible. So it's having facts and figures, understanding those facts and figures, and then using it in a practical sense. That is wisdom. Knowledge without application behind it is just information. It doesn't really help your day-to-day, -day, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. God wants us to have all of those things. Yes, to know facts and figures, to know information, to know truth, to know the right things, to understand and comprehend them, and then be able to apply them to our lives in the right times at the right ways. Pastor Alistair Begg defines wisdom as knowing how to live God's way in God's world. I like that definition. That's the definition we're going to use today. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. Now, Proverbs is going to tell us in Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then later on, it'll say in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you're looking for wisdom and knowledge, both are founded in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This word fear, it's, it's, there's two Two ways to look at fear when it comes to scripture. And both, I think, apply here. You have the terrifying aspect of fear and the awe-inspiring aspect. In the terrifying aspect, we have God. And God is love. And God is just. And God is kind and gentle and holy and good. But he is also the almighty creator of all existence. The ultimate authority by which everything exists and is held together and all things serve his glory. As you can see throughout the Old Testament, his wrath is powerful and can destroy anything and everything at his will. The power and authority of God that he has, the control that he has, should cause in us a little bit of fear, a little bit 
it should get us a little bit terrified. Because he has such a powerful authority. I use this illustration when we talk about this. It's the idea of when we are driving in our cars. It's a real car-heavy sermon today. I don't know why. When we're driving in our cars, we drive the way we want to drive. One hand on the wheel, eating a bag of chips, listening to music, and texting. Don't do those things. It's bad. We drive a certain way. But then as soon as there's a police car behind us, magically we're at 10 and 2. We are two miles under the speed limit. We are using our turn signals every time. We drive a different way. Why? Because there is a power and an authority behind us that changes the way that we drive. But the other side of fear is the awe-inspiring side. Because the ultimate power and majesty and holiness and goodness and grace, the amazingness of God should now and will forever cause awe-inspiring reverence to who he is. The fear of the Lord is a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is. C.S. Lewis has a quote in Mere Christianity. It says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. This understanding of who he is, this humble relation to God of who he is in comparison to who we are, that he is infinite and perfect and holy and good, and we are the opposite of all of those things. That's the beginning. That's the ABCs. The fear of the Lord is laying the right foundation, the level, smooth, even foundation on which to build our character and our lives. We live at an age and a time where information is literally at our fingertips. Even closer, it's at, the, it's at the tip of our tongues with our voice with things like Alexa and Google Play. We have a vast, almost infinite amount of knowledge at our whim. And yet, we lack true knowledge and wisdom. Why? Because many ignore the very center, the very beginning of knowledge and wisdom. God himself. You cannot have knowledge without God. You cannot have wisdom without God. You can know a lot of information. Non-Christians can obviously know a lot of information, but without God as part of their understanding, they lack true insight and knowledge. How can you truly know anything while ignoring and not taking into account the very source of that which you are trying to know? James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, So when James says that, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks this thing, lacks this practical ability to do the God, live God's way in God's world, if any of you lacks that, well, first off, don't we all, to some degree, if any of us lacks in knowing how to live God's way in God's world, don't we lack that in some degree? I think actually the way that James is writing this here in verse 5 is James is telling his readers that they are lacking in this area and you need to do something about it. This verse is the spiritual equivalent of a person offering you an unsolicited piece of gum or mint. If somebody offers you a piece of gum without like them taking out a piece and like eating it themselves, like if they just walk, you're talking to somebody and they offer you a piece of gum, what are they very politely telling you? Your breath is kicking. 
right? It's a very passive way of saying, your breath is bad, take a mint. James is very kindly here offering us a spiritual altoid. If you happen to lack in this area, parentheses, you do, then here's the solution. Ask. Ask God. Because God is the originator, the starting point of wisdom. We already saw that in Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9. So ask God because not only is he the originator, he gives generously to all. God has wisdom. He is the very source and beginning of wisdom, and he is happy to deal it out in generous portions. When God gives, he gives generously because he is a generous God. Be it mercy or grace or love or kindness or justice, it's never just enough. It's never just enough to get you to the next day. With God's blessings, we aren't living spiritual paycheck to spiritual paycheck, just barely getting by. God gives generously, so ask. We said last week the two big influences of James' writing, the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When you ask, you have no reason to worry, because God is a good, good Father who gives without reproach, meaning he won't mock or belittle you for needing or asking for wisdom. He won't get angry or annoyed that we asked and that we keep asking. You aren't interrupting him. You aren't bugging him. You aren't a nuisance or a burden to him. He gives with delight to his children. He also won't hold it over you. He won't bring it up as a way of saying, you owe me one. I gave you that wisdom. He's not going to use it to try and manipulate or control you. So James says, if any of you, again, also known as all of us, lack wisdom, Ask God because he wants to give freely and generously. But, says James, there's a word of warning for all of us. He's already shared how to get wisdom, is that we ask. But also here, he's going to share how not to get wisdom. And it has everything to do with how we ask. He says in verse 6, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Ask in faith with no doubting. But we all doubt. We have all questioned. We have all wondered. We have all wavered. God, what are you doing? God, where are you? I mean, even within Scripture, it's all over the place. James himself, we talked about it last week, right? He doubted his brother. He didn't believe that Jesus really was the Messiah. He thought Jesus was out of his mind. So does that mean James is lacking in wisdom? Is he writing from a place of, don't make the same mistakes that I made? I don't think this letter would read the way it does, nor would he have been the kind of leader and pastor of the church the way he was if he hadn't received God's wisdom. So then, if that's the case, what does James mean when he says, have no doubt? 
And if we come to God in prayer with faith and no doubting, he says in verse 6. Really, he's saying the same thing in two different ways, a positive and a negative way, so that everybody can understand the point. Ask in faith. Ask trusting in who God is. Trusting God can and will give generously to us wisdom. But the one who asks with doubt, for them, it's an empty prayer. It's shallow words. You're asking for something you don't actually think you're going to receive. It makes no sense. James says that person is like a wave upon the sea, up and down, here and there, tossed by the wind. No stability, no reliability, no rest, no peace. The word doubt can refer to an argument or a dispute, or the idea of removing yourself from a situation, being disconnected. If we pray with doubt, regardless of the words we use, what we're actually saying to God is, I don't trust in either who God is or in his willingness and ability to answer my prayer. Whatever your motive, ultimately it comes down to you don't trust God. And if you don't trust God, what are you doing praying in the first place? You're putting on a show either for somebody else around you or you think you're trying to convince and trick God. It's not working on either front. Now, clearly, James here is making a distinction between the doubt-filled person versus the brothers and sisters that he addressed earlier in the chapter. In verse 7, he look, he says, that person. It's not that brother or that sister, that person. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Obviously, there are things that even doubters receive from God, right? Their sky is still blue, their music is still pleasant, their tacos are still delicious. James means when it comes to prayer, specifically the prayer for wisdom, but I, really I think this instruction goes beyond that and applies to all prayer. If you don't trust God, why would you expect to get to, for him to give you anything? James says that person is double-minded in verse 8 unstable in all their ways. This phrase, double-minded, some scholars believe James made this word up on his own. It means literally two souls, being two different people at once. A person who is caught trying to follow God and trying to follow the world or trying to follow their gut. Unstable in all their ways, never able to truly make a decision, never truly able to focus on one thing, like one too many spins on the teacups at the amusement park and you go stumbling each step in a different direction. Again, coming from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that we can't serve two masters. And now he was speaking specifically the role wealth plays in a person's heart, and James is going to address that in a minute. The point remains, you can't serve two masters at the same time. And in doing that, he's reminding us that the call for the Christian is to be all in, focused and devoted on our faith in Christ. This is not a New Testament concept. This is not a new custom concept. We hear it all the way back in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. With all that you are, you are to love the Lord. Paul says something similar in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what's being addressed here. 
It's not about doubts and questions and understanding the will and plan of God. That's not always going to happen. We don't always get to know exactly where, how all the pieces fit and understand everything. We will always have questions. We will always be confused and confounded by the way God moves. That's part of us being finite and limited in our scope of understanding and experience. There are things we will never fully understand until that side of eternity. And even then, I'm pretty convinced that by the time we get there, we're not going to care about those things because we're going to be so in awe of being in the presence of God. The Bible is filled with people in this same spot who question and wrestle with being a human. That's not what James is addressing here. He's addressing the concept of a person with divided loyalties, divided desires. Their prayers and actions are at odds with one another. They say one thing, but they pursue another. They sing words glorifying God and honoring God and making requests of God, and then with their actions, they defy those very words. It's the person who prays for wisdom. God, I need your wisdom in my life. I need to know what to do about this relationship. And God says, okay, that person is, to that person is toxic and hurting you and taking you away from the things you're supposed to be doing. You need to break up. You need to walk away from that relationship. Well, no, God, I don't, I don't like that idea. Never mind. I'm going to do things my way. God, my, my bank account is a mess. I need wisdom when it comes to my finances. Okay. Be generous to those in need. Quit spending money on frivolous things. Sacrifice some of your luxuries to afford your necessities. Well, no, God, I, I meant I need wisdom on how to live the way I want to live. See, the double-minded, the doubter, they claim they want God's wisdom, but as long as that wisdom supports and condones what they already want to do. That's the double-minded man, unstable, unreliable, inconsistent, like a wave tossed by the wind. There's nothing fixed and safe about that person or their character. They trust and follow and listen to those who already agree with what they believe or just what they seem, what seemed popular at the time. See, the how matters. How you ask, with what kind of heart. We talked about this last week that James has this, rep this book of James has this reputation of this finger wagging, do this, do that. It's this idea of do better. But in actuality, the book of James is about our heart. It's about not so much about our actions, but about what is our heart? What are our motivations? What kind of heart do you have? What kind of motivations are you coming to God? What kind of desires? Why do you want the wisdom of God? And are you prepared and willing, if you receive it, to respond to it accordingly? Because like we said, if it's just information, if it's just knowledge, knowledge is fine, but, without, but knowledge without action doesn't really change anything. Wisdom responds to God's will. James gives us a look at that, at wisdom in action, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James talks, this is the first time, he's going to do it again later on, where he talks about wealth. When he talks about the lowly man, he's talking about the poor. It's the poor and the rich. And James will come back to this theme a few different times in his letter. This is the first one. And you might say, well, this is totally different. This has nothing to do with being double-minded. But it does. This is wisdom playing itself out. What does wisdom look like for the lowly? 
What does wisdom look like for the one in humble circumstances, for the lowly, for the poor? They are to boast, to celebrate in their exaltation, in their lifting up. The one who is low should celebrate the fact that they are raised up high. But you just said they were low. So what do you mean, James? How can they be low and high at the same time? Again, you can almost hear Jesus' words echoing through his brother's reign. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Great hymn by Sevilla D. Martin. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. See, James doesn't say, ask for wisdom and it's going to lead to money. It's going to lead to wealth and privilege. Maybe it will, but that's not the promise. See, and too many people want to try and sell that as the promise. But if you actually read scripture and read the text and read the words, the promises of God always exceed far beyond existence on earth. James says wisdom to the poor, to the humble, is when you consider and view your circumstances in light and comparison to the glorious riches of being in relationship with Jesus and what that provides. When you consider that you are the object of God's care and concern, when you realize that even coming to the understanding of your lowly estate, your need for help, when you come and you say, God, I have no idea how I'm going to get to tomorrow, even that revelation of needing help, the humble ability to fix your dependence, your hope on Christ alone, that in itself is evidence of the glory and riches and the joy and fullness of life you have received from God that begins here and now and continues on into eternity. The access that you have with God. The saved person clinging to the lowest rung of the ladder of socioeconomic status has an eternally higher position than that of the unsaved wealthy. When we consider our existence is more than the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years we get on this, work, on this planet. When we consider eternity, we realize the richness, the exaltation is more than commas in a bank account or levels on a house or stuff in the garage. The lowly begin to see with wisdom in their eyes the reality of their exalted standing with God. So then if we take the whole first nine verses into consideration, what James has been saying here, it would look something like this. Count it all joy, those who are economically low, as you endure the reality of living that way in this world that focuses so heavily on your bank account. The trials and testing that come from it, the exhaustion, the frustration, the worry and fear. As you endure living lowly, but in a manner glorifying God, trusting God, engaging with God, it will produce in you an enduring patience that will develop in you a character and spiritual life that is perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. But to do this, to endure these trials and temptations well, will take wisdom. So ask and get some and trust that God will help you identify, understand, and live in response to your lowly position. 
taking care of you, providing for you here, now, and throughout eternity. You are seen, you are known, you are loved by the God of all existence. Wisdom for the poor looks like realizing there is much more to existing as a human than earthly possessions when your identity is found in being a child of God. But James only spends a few words talking to the lowly, talking to the humble and the poor, but he spends a lot more talking to the rich. The rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What does wisdom look like for the rich? First off, he is not saying one is better than the other. That it's a crime or travesty that there are poor, that there are rich, that there is this divide. You can be poor and be a Christian and loved by God. You can be rich and be a Christian and loved by God. But scripture is always going to say that the latter is tougher. Not the being loved by God part, but the being a rich Christian part. Affluency breeds apathy and indifference. If I have an issue, I'll throw some money at it till it goes away. I don't need to depend on anyone but myself and my financial advisor. Certainly not some God who just wants me to give all my money away. Having money is not bad. But it brings its own set of troubles and obstacles. And that's what James is talking about here in verses 10 and 11. He says, for wisdom for the rich is to realize that this life, your existence, and all of your stuff is here today and gone tomorrow. Israel is known as, as, as rocky and, and mountains. It, it's not the prettiest of places. But there are certain spots that has lush greenery. Places where grass and flowers can grow and bloom. Beautiful areas. They're sometimes hard to come by, but they do happen. One good rainfall and gorgeous flowers sprout seemingly overnight and bloom and display their beauty. But as quick as they come, the scorching heat of the sun of that area can wither them up, wither them up and the thick air that blows the dust and the gravel and wipes those flowers away. James is telling the rich, wisdom is understanding the temporary nature of your status on this earth. Your money, your wealth, your privilege, they are fleeting and failing day by day. Your body itself, no matter how many chemicals, no matter how many procedures, no matter what you do to it, it is failing and one day will return to the dust. Again, he's not saying being rich is bad, but true wisdom is understanding that all of the stuff on earth is temporary and shallow and that much greater and bigger and more of more importance and value is a relationship, is eternity with God, where moths and rust cannot do damage to the treasures of God. So again, if we take all these earlier verses and we focus it on the rich, it's counted all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials and testing of your faith in regards to your wealth. The testing and trials of becoming self-focused, self-dependent, greedy, arrogant, indifferent to the world around you. As you endure living rich, but in a manner glorifying God, trusting God, engaging with God, it will produce in you an enduring patience that will develop in you a character and spiritual life that is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. To do this, to endure these trials and temptations will take wisdom. So ask and get some. 
and trust that God will help you identify, understand, and live in response to your high position in a way that glorifies God and displays his providence, displays his blessing and power in the eternal riches found not in gold and silver, silver stored on earth, but in the beauty of a relationship with God. Wisdom is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. The way that plays itself out is going to be different for each of us, but the ultimate reality of it remains the same. The truth of God's word is always the same, but the context we live it out in is different person to person. You don't live my life, I don't live your life. We endure the trials and the testing of life, different though they may be in form, to grow us and develop us in our walk with God, ultimately with the same purpose, to grow in our Christ-likeness. In Christ, the weak are made strong. The poor made rich, the strong made meek, and the rich made generous and self-aware. Christ, the gospel, the kingdom of God, takes what this world has to offer as helpful, as wisdom, as truth, and flips it and declares, no, absolutely not. That's not where these things are found. Truth and help and hope and actual wisdom is found in God. In knowing him, in trusting him, and in enjoying him, in walking with him in every trial and every test, knowing he is good, knowing that he sent his son to die for us to make a way so that we can walk with him, that we can trust him because he made a promise, and hundreds and hundreds of years later, he fulfilled that promise. It's seeking after him and seeking the kingdom first, knowing everything else will get taken care of by he who is in control of all things at all times. So if you lack wisdom, ask, and God will graciously give it to you in fullness. For the double-minded doubters, for those who stagger from one idea to the next, aren't you tired of being seasick? Aren't you tired of being tossed by the winds and the waves? I promise there is hope for you. There is rest for you. There are calm seas for you. And they are found in and through putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Realizing that it is neither your high exalted status on earth or your low ignored status on earth that matters. What matters is whether or not you have a relationship with Christ. Because there you are found as a child of God. You are a son or daughter. You inherit what Christ inherits. You are exalted in that position. There is hope there and life and grace and mercy and joy. There is knowledge and there is wisdom found in that relationship. We find it in Christ. So seek after him. Learn from him. Engage with him because there is wisdom to be had, to be doled out over and over. And when, not if, as James says, when, not if, the weather turns dark and gray there is an anchor of stability available to us. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. In the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in my suffering in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I can hold fast to that anchor and it shall never, no, never be removed. living in this world is hard and exhausting and frustrating. And God, sometimes we know the right thing to do and it's difficult. Sometimes we don't know the right thing to do and we don't know which way to go. 
God, give us wisdom. Give us your wisdom. Help us to know how to best live in this world. You made this world. You made all of this. You know what is best for us. God, help us to know what is best for us. Help us to be a people who in every challenge and every decision, whether it's in a group or by ourselves with our thoughts and the things that nobody else but you sees, Lord, give us wisdom to live in a way that makes much of you, that glorifies you. Because in doing so, we are doing what is best for us. Making a decision that glorifies you is never going to be a bad thing for us. God, help us as we endure trials and temptations of various kinds. Help us as we just live as people, as family members and neighbors and coworkers and parents and sons and daughters. And God, help us to do that wisely. To not run from difficult situations and difficult conversations and difficult moments, but prayerfully consider those opportunities and, and step into them. God, at those moments where we don't know what to do or what to say, we trust you're going to be there with us, that you're going to do the speaking, that you're going to give us the words to say, that you're going to give us the best way to respond. The, the rich man with the sick daughter. We come and we say, God, I, I believe and I, I know you are good and I know you can do these things and I know you have what's best in mind for us all the time. I, I believe, but God, help my unbelief. Help those places where we doubt and we question and we worry and we wrestle. Help us to trust you. To rest in you, to be with you. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. You didn't give us an option on that one. You said, this is who you are. If you are my sons and daughters, if you are my followers, you are the light of the world. So God, help us to shine brightly. Help us to live in such a way that makes much of you. One of the ways that happens is by not only asking for wisdom, but living wisely. God, we can't do that on our own. Help us to do that. Help us to shine brightly. Help us to live wisely. Help us to live in this world in a way that makes much of you. Because you are good. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.